Hey, welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students looking for the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. Today I have a great guest, and before we get into that, just wanted to let you guys know, of course, feel free to subscribe, to leave a comment, and if you enjoy this episode, let at least one friend know. All right, without further ado, our guest. Today I have um, a guest that I'm really excited to have on. Um, and I guess I'll let you introduce yourself and we'll get into why I'm so excited to, to have you on. So give us your name and a brief bio and then we'll jump into some of these things. Sure. I'm really excited to be here as well. Um, my name is Jesse Smith and, uh, I am a doctoral candidate in marriage and family therapy. Um, and currently I work at Drexel University as a project coordinator for, um, the Center for Family Intervention Science and I'm implement implementing a behavioral health screening tool in the primary care clinics. Uh, I run the attachment based family therapy um, clinic here called family safety net. I also see clients out of that clinic. I've been here since August. Um, I also supervise master students in the couple and family therapy program here at Drexel. And I've been learning attachment based family therapy from its founder guy diamond. Uh, over the course of the last nine months or so. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on finishing up my dissertation and hopefully I'll be a PhD by the end of the summer. Yeah, hopefully by the time that this comes out, I can put Jesse PhD, not ABD, because that doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't really count. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and tell them how, how we got connected. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I am a minority fellow with the uh, AAMFT Minority Fellowship Program. I'm actually a dissertation completion fellow, uh, which is specifically because I'm in the sort of the final year of my uh, PhD process. And so uh, I'm a dissertation completion fellow. And we met because you are my mentor through the Minority Fellowship Program. And so we got paired up and we've had a few conversations over the last couple of months, just sort of talking about uh, life and the field and sort of like, you know, where I am and where I wanna go and it's been really great. Yeah, I think that you know this, but um, there's a soft spot in my heart for all MFPs. And so the fact that we're sort of part of this together is like such a, to me it's like, um, a growing little network of people who are interested in issues of diversity and aren't afraid to have hard conversations. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a little sort of, uh, society within the field, you know, I think, um, it feels very sort of like we have a common purpose, you know, like when we get together, like, so we meet basically in person twice during the course of the like fellowship year at, the AAMFT conference and then there's an institute uh, in the spring and it really does feel particularly at the institute uh, where it's just minority fellows um, is really kind of a special place to sort of talk about social justice and like everybody's research interests sort of align and it's great. Yeah and once you're an alum nus I always get that confused because it's Latin and I speak like 20 different languages, but I don't speak Latin, you know, um, <laughs> at least not, not, not modern Latin. 
Um, <laughs> um, I think alumnus is the male version and alumna is female. Yes. Yes. And what's the, what's the plural? Alumni. Alumni. There we go. Because it's, yes, of course. Of course, I should have known that. Um, once you're in alumni, you can also, you sort of see that like, like I get a lot of emails that are directed to MFPs across disciplines. Yeah. From psychologists. I don't know if you're getting those now. When I was in my fellowship, I didn't get any of that stuff. But when I did, and when I was finished and I was an alumni, um, like social workers, psychologists, MFTs, uh, we actually had a psychologist. He's an MF. He was an, an, an MFP. And we had this, this moment of like, you were an MFP. I was an MFP. Uh, he came on the, on, on the, on the podcast. Oh, wow. And so there's sort of even like um, a little bit of a, of a broader network even among MFPs across this discipline. Yeah. Well, I wonder, because I, I know that the marriage and family therapy MFP has only been around for, I don't know, like less than 10 years, I think. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if, if they all sort of started at the same time or if some of the other professions have had it for longer. I don't know the answer. That's a great question. I have no idea. I have no, I guess it would depend on the SAMHSA. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, I do want to get into that because students need to know about that. But before we get to that, how did you get into the world of counseling? Yeah. So for me, you know, growing up, I always sort of wanted to, I knew that I wanted to go into something in the realm of, sort of helping people. Um, when I was a kid, you know, I, I thought that that was like being a doctor and then I got a little bit older and I was like, oh, I'm gonna be a psychiatrist. Um, because I thought psychiatrists actually did therapy, which and actually here in Philly, uh, there are a lot of psychiatrists that do therapy. Wow. It's interesting, because I know that everywhere else I've lived, they just pure med management just writing those scripts. Yeah. But anyway, um, so the, that was, that was definitely like part of it is, you know, before everything else, like I sort of knew that I wanted to, to go into something related to this. Um, but also, you know, a big part of my story is that I'm a person in long-term recovery. Um, and for me, that means that I haven't used a drink or a drug since January 27th of 2012. And so that journey for me sort of, also began when I was a kid um, and just sort of, you know, I don't, a lot of people in recovery have, you know, um, there tends to be a high association with traumatic uh, experiences in childhood. And that, that wasn't really my experience. I think I, as a kid, sort of just always felt sort of different. I really struggled to fit in. Um, I always just sort of felt like an outsider. And then in adolescence, you know, I started to drink and experiment with, you know, different substances to sort of cope with that and also to feel like I could fit in. Um, and it just sort of progressively got worse and worse. And um, then in uh, 2012, I sort of got to the breaking point and decided to get help, went to treatment. And uh, thankfully I've managed to, maintain my recovery ever since. And um, when I was in treatment, 
actually my my counselor, which this is not super common. Excuse me. Uh, but my my like individual counselor uh, in treatment was actually a marriage and family therapist. And uh, then I after I finished treatment, I went back to school because I was in college at the University of Alabama at the time. And I went back to school and I got involved with the formation of a collegiate recovery community there at the University of Alabama, which is a whole another big thing that's been a big part of my story that I'm still involved with. Um, and the collegiate recovery community is basically the gist of it is sort of an academic support program for people that are in recovery for substance use disorders to sort of help them to um, achieve higher education. And so I got involved with that program and that sort of connected me with uh, Adam Downs, who is a PhD LMFT uh, that was the director of substance abuse services there, newly hired when I went back to school. And he was uh, my mentor, my first sort of MFT mentor there. Uh, and he and his wife, Carly Downs, who's also a PhD LMFT, really sort of were the, the voice of swaying me to go into MFT specifically uh, because, you know, as I learned, you know, I, I sort of had given up on, you know, being able to be a doctor, go to medical school. And then I had tried to look into going into psychology programs. And, you know, when I was using, I wasn't doing very well in school. And so that wasn't really an option. And then, you know, I, I really felt like MFT was, sort of the best <laughs> MFTs they don't care about grades so right. <laughs> well I will say that I, I turned it around and I ended up graduate I mean not to brag on myself but I got my undergrad degree uh, was magna cum laude yeah like a 3.8 something yeah so, GPA yeah, that's 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 awesome you know I mean all of that is on the one hand and I hope this this might sound really bad on on the one hand, it's like um, don't want to put you up on a pedestal because sometimes there are people that can be para paralyzing. You know, like oh man, I can't not do well, right? Um, so like you're a person who's done the hard work and you know and has invested in themselves and now is investing in other people, like other people. Yeah. Right. And on the other side of that, whenever people make it through some sort of challenge, it should be celebrated, you know? And so like, there is a kudos that's um, deserved, you know? Yeah. So I, I want to acknowledge both of those, you know, like, Hey, if something happened next week and I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're human. And on the other side of that, like, if you climbed a mountain, man, you climbed a mountain. Like, that's a good yeah. thing. So. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, I, one of the things that really bothers me is when people tell their story and then it, they only talk about sort of the, the positive things. And, you know, they, it's sort of like they feel like they have to have sort of a, a happy ending to their story. Like they can talk about all of the negative things that have happened in the past, but they have to present themselves in the present as being sort of all together, right? Yeah. And I definitely don't want to do that because for me, I think, like humility is super important and humility. I think a lot of people think means like sort of humbling yourself and bringing yourself down. If you have, if you think too highly of yourself, 
but it's also about bringing yourself up. It's about right sizing sort of where you fit. And I think what you were saying of, you know, looking at, okay, yes, there's so much that I've overcome, but I still struggle, you know, and just sort of understanding the balance between those and like where I fit in the world, because that's sort of part of uh, my problem with, with sub. Cause you know, for me, the, the substances were first, they were a solution to a problem and then they became a problem in and of themselves. And so the, the real problem is, is something else entirely. And that thing causes me to, you know, think I'm either the God's gift to man or like the worst human on the planet. Yeah. So I swing back and forth. That um, shame pride sort of cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I, I mean, if I'm honest, I go through that at times as well, you know, and yeah. I think you got to catch yourself. Like, okay. Reality is I am special to my mom and my son and my wife and my family. And also in a thousand years, no one's going to know my name. <laughs> you know, like keeping right. those two things really in balance. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I've got to ask, man, do it all of that. How come you went more into the attachment based family therapy world instead of like the addiction world? You know, it's interesting cause I'm still kind of straddling both worlds a little bit, but when I got into my master's pro, you know, I, that was my original thought, right? It was, you know, I like the systemic thinking and, you know, a lot, a lot of the people that sort of were MFTs that influenced me were on the substance use side of our field, which is interesting because there's not a ton of MFTs that are like addiction focused. Um, it's kind of a small niche in our field, but I just happened to be run across all of them. So that was sort of my plan. I <laughs> to run across all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I can name off all of the like people that do, you know, substance use research in our field, but, um, uh, and mo- a lot of them are MFP fellows, um, mm. which is a part of the fellowship, right? Right. Yeah. Substance so use. yeah. Cause it's SAMHSA. It's, it's, it's sort of both social justice and, uh, uh, substance use, which I think I kind of, was allowed to the table because of my substance use research. It just so happens that I also, um, you know, I'm really committed to social justice. So, um, but anyway, sort of when I got into my master's program, that was my thought was, you know, it was going to be all, you know, addiction all the time. And I sort of fell in love with couples therapy. (laughs) (laughs) It was the weirdest thing, you know, like, I remember the first time that I ever got into a therapy room with a couple and it just felt, it felt like home, you know, I just felt so um, excited to be able to sort of connect with two different people and to sort of just dive into helping them to connect with each other, you know? And I think for me, what I've sort of realized over the course of my development is that Therapy for me, the reason that I really want to get into it is because I'm really interested in connecting with other people, right? Because I talked about like as a kid, that was sort of what I was missing was that like feeling connected to other people. And so I think that was what was so exciting to me about couples therapy, specifically like working on uh, enhancing connection and intimacy and those kind of things. And so I was really attracted to uh, emotionally focused couples therapy. Yeah. Um, I saw some videos of Sue Johnson and I was like, this is it. 
<laughs> ultimate thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was sort of what I was thinking. That was sort of like my clinical interest, right? And then, and I wanted to sort of get more training and do more of that. But a, a lot of my, but my research was still sort of very focused on addiction, recovery types of things. And that's sort of what, so, you know, I ended up uh, going to Texas Tech for my PhD um, because the department is the Department of Community, Family, and Addiction Science. And wow. so half the department is addiction faculty and half the department is MFT faculty. And so I went there because of my, you know, interest in addiction. And so a lot of my research is still, in fact, I don't think I have any active research lines for couples therapy, but, and, and most of it is addiction focused or recovery focused. Um, but then, you know, last year around this time, I was looking for internship opportunities because uh, I was, I finished my coursework last summer and I was getting ready to start my dissertation and, and was looking for an internship. And I actually saw this job description was emailed out to all the MFP fellows was how I found out about this job opportunity. And so it came out and it said, you know, working on the behavioral health screening, also, you know, opportunity to learn uh, attachment-based family therapy. And the first time that I ever saw, had heard of attachment-based family therapy was at the uh, AAMFT National Conference a couple of years ago. Uh, and Guy Diamond was part of a larger workshop that was like, looking at different things, but he did a little short intro about sort of ABFT. And I remember being, you know, intrigued by it at that point. And then when I saw this job description, I was like, attachment based. That sounds interesting. Right. EFT, yeah. So there's yeah, that direct like, sort of connection. Yeah, exactly. And so I looked into it some more and I was like, wow, this seems like a perfect fit for me and sort of how I view the change process and the kind of work that I enjoy doing. Um, and so, and it was also just a really great opportunity because, uh, you know, Guy Diamond is, he's a psychologist by training, but he uh, is very much like obviously a, you know, family therapy systemic uh, yeah. person. And so, but along with that psychology, psychologist comes a lot of, a lot more research intensive focus. And so, you know, he's had a long career of getting, you know, NIH funding and doing like large scale research. He's done randomized controlled trials, uh, examining the effectiveness of ABFT, like several. Um, and so I was like, wow, this is a great opportunity to sort of get that high level research experience that not a lot of folks in our field have the opportunity to, to experience. And, and it's in Philadelphia. <laughs> so, you know, I grew up in Alabama and then I lived in West Texas for two years. And so coming to the big city on the East coast was exciting for me. Yeah. That's a big change. Uh, yeah. So I packed up and moved cross country and, here I am. Like the opposite of the Fresh Prince. 
Right. <laughs> um, that is, that is, well, I guess the question is, would you see yourself going back to couples therapy or are you, you know, all in on ABFT only now or? You know, I think it's sort of expanded my understanding. Cause I think a lot of times we sort of get taught these like few models in our field and it's like, okay, now you got to pick one. Right. And so I think EFT has been very prolific in sort of marketing itself to MFTs. But now I sort of, I kind of view myself more as like an attachment based, not attachment based family therapy, but just an attachment oriented clinician. Yeah. And so um, I don't think I've said this yet, but ABFT is geared specifically for working with adolescents and their parents. And it fits, it's sort of geared towards depressed and suicidal uh, adolescents and young adults as well. So it's, it is sort of very focused on a specific population. Um, and EFT is sort of more specifically with couples. Um, but I think that they share a lot of similarities and they share a lot of like theoretical uh, consistencies and then also like sort of practical in the room similarities as well. And so I think that's, that's sort of how I view myself as like whatever population I'm working with. Attachment is the lens. Yeah. Yeah. I felt some of that in the article that you sent me. Um, I was reading through the article and in both what they reference, because they did reference EFT, both sides mm -hmm. of it, the, the Sue Johnson side and the Les Greenberg side. Mm -hmm. um, and then also in how they conceptualize the change process seemed very consistent with um, EFT. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of surprised, honestly. Yeah, I mean, they definitely are very aware of their work and respect it a lot. Um, and there's a lot of cross pollination as well between the two, you know, in terms of like people that a lot of people get sort of trained in both here. Obviously EFT is a lot more, you know, prolific, but a lot of the folks that uh, I know that have, you know, gone through the ABFT training process also do EFT training. And so there's a lot of cross pollination. Yeah, I've seen that um, not with the ABFT side, but with the, Accelerated Dynamic Experiential Therapy, A AEDP, AEDT, I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I think Diana Foch came up with that. And it's an, it's an individual model. And so I've seen people who want the couples and they'll do EFT, but for the individuals, they'll do the, the um, AED, I think it's AEDP, but I don't know what the acronym stands for anyway. Um, so that makes a lot of sense because the EFT for families is, is coming and it doesn't feel as fully fleshed out yet. So I can see people taking their EFT skills and getting the a, uh, AFBT, um, ABFT model, and then kind of like going from there if they want to also do family work. Right. Or parent-child work. Um, so this is a great time. Tell us about um, attachment-based fa family therapy. Sure. 
So sort of like I said, you know, attachment-based family therapy is geared towards working with depressed uh, teens, young adults, and their parents. Um, but it, it's started to become sort of examined in other contexts as well, you know. Um, the, some of the cases that I've seen this year, you know, I had um, one teen that was sort of more on the anxiety spectrum. Um, we've sort of had, you know, a broad spectrum of, uh, of presenting problems. But really, you know, I think the core of what attachment-based family therapy is trying to do is have a balance between attachment and autonomy. Um, because, you know, adolescence is such a critical time for development for teens and for those that are really struggling with depression and particularly with suicidality, um, we find that it's that parents can sort of be, they can either be the relationship with the parents can either be causing the problems. They can be making the problems worse, but then also they can buffer against those problems as well. And so it's kind of amazing because um, I think people, you know, I think a lot of the listeners to this podcast are big believers in systems and family therapy as a change process. But I think even for me, but particularly for people that aren't, you know, systems thinkers, it seems sort of counterintuitive to be like, oh, this person is like suicidal. We should work on the relationship, right? Um, but it's, I mean the results are striking. Um, like if you, they, they do a lot of uh, recording. And so like all the trainings that we do and like the talks that we do at conferences and stuff, we, we love to show video because it's just, you know, you see sort of like a first session and then you see like 10, 12 weeks in the complete shift in like the, relationship and and how the parent is able to be there for the kid and um and it is it's designed as a brief treatment so all of the research studies are 12 to 16 weeks and so and there's phenomenal results from just a 12 to 16 week treatment uh that also hold up across time so they do follow-ups and they uh, you know, at like a year follow-up are still maintaining those gains. Wow. And we're talking about, we're talking about like severe cases too. We're not talking about just like slightly depressed. We're talking about highly suicidal teens. Um, and it's, it's really amazing to sort of see the change that it can happen. Um, but just to sort of break it down a little bit, it's, it's, in a lot of ways more sort of conceptual. So when you think about sort of a, a manualized treatment, right? You think about like CBT or you think about some, a lot of the, you know, really specific sort of manualized treatments that are like, you know, this is session one, you go in, you do this, 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 and then like uh, multi-systemic therapy, which can be. Yeah. So ABFT is a little bit different um, because it's really centered more around tasks. So it's like, which you is know, which seems to be a direct influence from EFT with um, task right. task analysis. Mm -hmm. 
So there's five tasks in ABFT, uh, and they're pretty straightforward. Um, and particularly, um, like, so task one is typically done in a single session. So, you know, some, most places sort of require some sort of like intake session. So you would have that, or you might do that sort of in the first 30 minutes or whatever of an, of an appointment. And then this would be sort of like the first session of therapy. And basically the, the task one is called relational reframe. And basically what you're trying to do is sort of create this emotional experience in which you're motivating the parents or the caregivers and the adolescent to agree to work on the relationship as the goal of treatment, uh, which as you can imagine is sometimes difficult for teens that are suicidal for their parents to be like, well, why are we working on the relationship? You know, I brought my teenager here cause they're suicidal. And then for uh, the can teen, I tell you a story. About yeah. That? Did I tell you that I had a friend who worked with Mnuchin? Did I, did, I, did I tell you that story? I don't think so. Um, I think for students, this will really resonate with them because that is so hard. I had a friend who worked with Mnuchin for a semester and he said it was sort of like an honor thing. Mnuchin came to their school for a semester to work and um, they saw like two clients the whole, the whole semester. Like, what? What? He said, yeah, man. And this was like 2015, maybe 2014. He said, yeah, well, you know, I, I, had, I had done this. I was so excited. I got this special sort of permission to work with him for a semester. He came up to, came up to the clinic and we had no clients. I was like, but how is that possible? He said, because people don't want family therapy. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, and Minucci would only see people if they came in with a with with their family. Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, that's how hard it is, right? Like, yeah. um, unless unless you are as a unless you are very very well trained at getting people to buy into that to that framework on the front end, yeah. Even if you're as good as Minucci, and people are like, yeah, maybe not. It's that's really weird. surprising to me. I was shocked, but I, I mean, that was my own experience doing um, in-home therapy. If you try to get family involved and they'd be like, mm, my kid's OCD, just go deal with them. And I didn't have the training, but yeah. it sounds like now you sort of have the technology, you sort of have the training to really enlist people on the front end. Yeah, well, and also, I mean, it sounds like you're saying that they had a difficulty sort of getting people in the door and that and keeping them. Yeah. So I think, you know, we don't really struggle with either of those things here. Wow. Um, we, we started up, so the, the clinic that I've been operating, we sort of started up last October. So it was like, it didn't exist or it had existed before, like, but it hadn't been around for a few years. And we started it up and immediately started getting calls and, I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of that is, is Guy has a really great relationship with a lot of uh, folks in the city. He was at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for 20 years before he came to Drexel. And so the relationships that he has there, I would say that's the vast majority of the referrals that we got were like the social workers and the, and the doctors at 
at CHOP. Um, but yeah, I mean, and particularly I think in working with suicidal teens, it's like parents that have a suicidal kid are willing to do, do anything. I mean, you know, I was fielding a lot of these calls. I was like coordinating the clinic. And so I was taking a lot of the phone intakes and I mean, these, these moms in particular are calling around just desperate for, to get their kid in immediately. And that was sort of something that we offered was like, we were on the ball, you know, quick, we get, we get people in quickly. Whereas a lot of, you know, resources here are long waiting lists. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's a big difference. Maybe the population, because he wasn't working with suicidal teens, but he was doing family therapy with whoever came in. Right. So maybe that's a big difference. I think like just in terms of a tip for, you know, students that are looking at sort of like how to be successful, I think branding yourself and having a specialization is really important, particularly like depending on what kind of market you're going into. I mean, I think in a large city like Philadelphia, if you just say you have some sort of bland statement of, you know, Oh, I love, you know, working with, I, I see like sort of the boilerplate uh, psychology today. Uh, Profiles. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about where it's like, I believe that, you know, everyone is capable of being wonderful and I'm going to walk with you on this journey together through, you know, just like that sort of gobbledygook that people put in there. <laughs> and, um, and I think that turns some people off. You know, I, th- I, th- I really believe in being straightforward of like, you know, this is, this is what I do. And I am confident that I can, if this is what's going on for you, I can help you with this. Here's, here's the here's the problem though so i'm gonna push back on you the problem is that how clinicians conceptualize problems is different than how clients do right right because if you say hey look i'm an attachment specialist mm-hmm. and so I, that's what i'm going to work with they're going to say but my kid's depressed and they're going to keep on looking you know or if i say i'm an attachment specialist right say but i need couples therapy i don't know what what attachment theory so i think that's where the the rub can really come for people, right? Like, right. I'm sorry. I wasn't clear. I wasn't talking about marketing yourself as an attachment specialist. I was talking about marketing yourself as a specialist in working with teenagers that are suicidal mm-hmm. or working with African-American families or working with, uh, you, you know what I mean? Like what is your specialty, right? In terms of population, in terms of presenting problem, um, isn't that kind of a misnomer, though? Because me, I mean, and maybe this is not true, but, you know, people like you who are well-trained are going to say, look, the, the through thread of all of this is attachment, where someone else might say the through thread of all of this is motivation. And so they're going to do motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. So your conceptualization of problems in general is going to be based in attachment theory. Right. So as long as it's, as it is an attachment issue in some way, then you can work with it. Right. So, and and I 100% agree with what you were saying before about the majority of clients don't care. (laughs) Therapist or you're a narrative therapist or you're a solution focused therapist. Like they do not care. They don't know what that is. And if you try to explain it to them, they're going to just completely tune you out. So I think that, 
if you do try to sort of present the approach that you're coming from, you have to do it in a way that is going to be, make sense to them and that's going to appeal to them. Right. And so, and some people I think do, you know, use some of that gobbledygook language in their psychology today profile that makes that case. Right. So if uh, you know, if you are an attachment therapist, you can talk about fostering connection, right. You can talk about like the importance of like how uh, feeling like you have a secure base, right. Can help you to, you know, with, with problems, right. So you can use that kind of language. Um, and if you're solution focused, you can talk about like resources and how, you know, we believe, you know, if the solution focused therapist believes that, you know, you already possess everything you need. It's just, you know, you know, however it is that you conceptualize problems, I think using language that isn't technical can sort of appeal to certain people. That's a really fine um, distinction, right? Okay, so, because what you're saying is like, okay, talk about your population, make sure that, that that's well known, because that's what pulls clients in. And then you talk about how you help people resolve problems, use common language to talk about that, right? So if I work with addiction, right, say, look, I work with addiction. I work with people who are doing this. Mm-hmm. And of course, what we know is that people who um, are in recovery from addiction, they need strong relationships. So that's, that's your attachment frame, right? right? But people know that this is your population so that they can find you. I think that that's ideal, but you know, it's, it, sometimes it takes a little bit of time for people to figure out what that looks like for them. You know, like, I, I still haven't completely, you know, as I said, I've still kind of got my feet in, or I've got my fingers in a lot of pies, I guess, in terms of figuring out sort of what my specialty is, but. Um, well, and I would, I would imagine that um, well, maybe not, it depends on your license, but I would imagine that, you know, you would, if you, if you continue to do the work that, that you're doing at some point, someone's going to say, Hey, my aunt and my uncle are having trouble. Can you help them? And then that's your couple side of it, right? And you go, well, yeah, I can, because yeah, trained in this or whatever. Well, we got a little bit off track. We so. did, we did. <laughs> so, you know, because I do, I do want to kind of just like hit the high points of they. Yes, tell me about uh, attachment-based family therapy. So the so first we- task is the first task is the re- relational reframe, and really in that session, you're sort of starting to try to get some pain in the room. That's well, first you, you know, do the joining thing, right? You talk about strengths, you sort of connect with the adolescent and the parents, right? You do all of that stuff. And then you work towards trying to bring some of the pain into the room, right? So you're talking to the adolescent and the parents about what's the problem, what's the, the mental health problem that is bringing them in, right? Are they suicidal? You know, how bad is it? Have they had an attempt? You know, you're just trying to really sort of amplify some of that pain. And then you make this very intentional shift in this, in the session where you start to talk about the relationship. And so you've, you brought the pain in and then we always ask, this is like the one thing that's like the question that you have to ask. And it's, do you go to your parents when you're feeling this way? No, they never do. There's like no way that they can say yes to that. Right. And so then they say no. And then you say, why don't you go to your parents? 
And so then you're trying to, and it doesn't always happen in that first session, but oftentimes they do sort of say, well, you know, I feel like when I go to my mom, she's, she's too busy, you know, actually, you know, the, the most common thing, like I think guy says like 70% of kids say, I don't want to be a burden. My mom's got so much going on. She's stressed out. She's a single mom, right? She's got her own trauma. I don't want to be a burden to her. Right. And so that's the attachment rupture, right? So that's what we're trying to get at just to use some technical language, right? Like the attachment, what's, what's the, the rupture in the attachment relationship, right? Which we're trying to get that. And then once we have that, we're trying to increase longing. So we're trying to make that we're trying to motivate them to want to reconnect. So once there's, there's some pain, there's some, you know, what's, what's the rupture you try to, you know, amplify their desire to be connected to each other. And then you go for the contract. So then you say, you know, we want to focus on the relationship. And by this point, you've built up this huge emotional experience and they're going to say yes. A lot of times, depending on how. You <laughs> so that's the ideal scenario. And it, and it happens. I mean, I've done it. It's, it's amazing. No, I have no doubt that it works. Cause I mean, it sounds, I have not done this, but I've done EFT and, and it, not, and it is all about the emotional experience. Mm -hmm. So I, I believe you 100%. Yeah. It's just, I think for me, it's still odd that in some ways we can orchestrate these things. That's yeah. me, that, that to me, that still kind of blows my mind, but. Right. So then after that first session, when you get the relational contract, you split them up and you meet with the adolescent alone and you meet with the, the caregiver or caregivers. So, you know, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but you know, you, I would say the most of the cases that we see it, it's just one parent coming in. But if it's two parents, you kind of have to make a decision of whether you should see them together or separate and those kind of things. But you're splitting the parental subsystem and the adolescent subsystem uh, to meet with them separately. And so task two is called the Adolescent Alliance. And that's just the course of meeting with the adolescent alone. And task three is the um, parental alliance. And that's working with the the parents alone. And basically what you're trying to do is, is sort of motivate, you're trying to create a, it's just extended joining is one piece of it, uh, where you're trying to buy enough goodwill to really push in the next task, right? So that's one piece of it. You're also with the adolescent, you're trying to get them to put some more language around and, and some insight into what is their attachment narrative. So you're really sort of building a narrative of what are the things that have gotten in the way of going to the parents? You know, are there big attachment traumas? Are there attachment, you know, like process issues, right? Like, so the feeling like a burden, feeling like when they go to their parents, their parents just tell them that they need to suck it up, right? Um, boys don't cry, right? You know, they're getting bullied at school. They come home, tell mom, you know, that they're upset. Mom says, just hit them back, right? Don't stop crying, right? So those kind of things, as well as like, you know, more serious things too, right? Like, so a lot of times, you know, maybe it's, you know, one case that, I, that I've um, 
wasn't my case, but that I've seen is, um, you know, the mom comes in with the kid and the kid feels like mom didn't protect them from an abusive stepfather. Right. And they felt betrayed, right. They felt that they were, you know, not protected. And so, you know, we, we get into all this, right. And so we're getting into it with the adolescent and they're sort of building up the, this attachment language as well to sort of talk about these things. And you're also sort of building the motivation to get them to want to talk about it with the parent. Cause ultimately in task four, what you're trying to get move towards is having the adolescent share all of this with the parents and then have the parents respond in a better way. Right. So simultaneously while you're working on that with the adolescent, with the parents, you're trying to do the work to get them to have, you're, you're building emotional experiences for them and coaching them through, and you know, just really briefly giving them some psycho ed about, you know, emotion coaching skills and those kinds of things right before task four. Um, and there's several sort of pathways that you can do that. Uh, you know, one is, is looking at the intergenerational work and that's sort of the, the main go-to is when you were a teenager, what was that like for you? Did you have a good relationship with your parents? Were you able to go to them? Right. Or if not, what was that? What was their attachment? I like that a lot. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. That is really good. Cause if they can sort of, and this is, you know, there's a lot of different sort of presentations too, right? So, you know, you think about different attachment styles and sort of how that plays out behaviorally. Um, but it works particularly well with a parent that's a little bit more harsh. So like that, um, that parent that says, you know, don't cry, right? Probably they had a parent that said those, gave them those same messages, right? And if you can get them in touch with what that felt like for them, you know, I mean, I've seen sessions where a parent that was, so harsh in task three, they connect with that pain that they felt as a kid and they're just crying the whole time, you know, and you don't want to go as deep with the parents because it's not as, it's not about them as much. It's about getting them to a place to be there for the kid. And a lot of times we do sort of refer the parent out for their own individual work because, you know, a lot of times the parents have some, some trauma, they have some stuff that they need to work through. Yeah. And we don't get into that too deep, but it can be a really powerful experience for parents. Is it also a, a reframe? Because I would, I would imagine that on some level, and maybe this is not true for like severely. Well, I've seen it with severely suicidal people, but they come in and like the problems that the kid is doing this or the kid won't do X. But if you, if you reframe it, and maybe this isn't the, the way, but if you reframe it and talk about their history, it's like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Yeah. This is because, you know, my parents couldn't respond because of the Great Depression or Jim Crow or whatever, you know, your population right. is coming from. And so then that's, the problem is history, which makes sense in context, not like the kid. Is that, is that part of the, the model or is that not? Yeah, I think it's, it's great if the parents have that aha moment right? Of being able to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And I think that's phenomenal. It's not always necessary though. You know, I mean, 
you kind of work with what you, you got, you know, you got. Yeah. And I think some parents are definitely able to make that connection. Um, you're more looking for them to touch into that pain so that then they have empathy for the kid. Right. You're trying to, particularly if they're harsh, uh, you want, you want to soften them. Right. Um, and so all of this is sort of building towards task four, which is my favorite, right? It's the enactment, right? And so really in task four, what you're trying to do is have a corrective attachment experience, right? That's sort of the main goal here is have the kid talk about some pain and have the parents respond in a way that is attachment, you know, like is, is helping them to feel safe and secure, right? And validated. And so that uh, sometimes goes really well from the beginning and sometimes <laughs> does not, right? And you're trying to stay as hands-off as possible. So it's really more about trying to, you know, be a coach. So you're trying to have them, you know, be, you know, speak, talk to each other directly. And so, you know, mo mostly you want to be interacting with the parent and you're trying to coach the parent on how to ask questions and, and how to do it. And, um, it's, it's sometimes a struggle, but then, you know, you, you repeat that. And so all task one is usually one session, but the rest of the tasks are just sort of based on like when you get to the point where you've completed the task, right? So it can be, you know, a couple of sessions or longer. So then you have markers for what, for what is a complete a task? Is that how that works? Yeah. So like basically in, in task two, you're trying to get to a place where you feel like the adolescent is motivated to actually, you know, talk to the parent. They have some language to talk about that. You feel like they trust you enough to sort of make sure that they're safe. And in task three, what you're looking for is, do you feel like, I mean, a lot of times it's just sort of, you're done with task two and you feel like you've gotten as much done with the parent as you can and you just go with it. But you know, you're, you're wanting them to be a little bit more in tune with some pain, a little bit more empathetic, have a little bit more insight and ability to, you know, regulate themselves, uh, have some skills, right. To, to be there and validate the kid. Um, and so that's sort of what you're looking for with task two and three. And then in four, right, you're trying to have them sort of talk about this, these attachment ruptures. And that can go on for several sessions. And then task five, which you don't always get to because of time, right, is about promoting autonomy. And so throughout the first four tasks, things are coming up, right? So, you know, parents will come in and they're like, the kid is failing out of school. And, or they're, you know, having unprotected sex. Or they're, you know, skipping curfew or, you know, whatever it is, like all this, all these kinds of things that are coming up, they got to um, apply for college, right? We got to figure out where they're going to college, how they're going to pay for it, right? So these are all things that we sort of put in the parking lot for task five. So, wow. Uh, okay. So that's yeah. what Dr. Levy talks about is like putting things in the parking lot. Um, so 
Suzanne uh, Levy is the training director. So she does almost all the training for attachment-based family therapy. She's phenomenal. Highly recommend going to one of her trainings. Um, but I mean, you've almost she, sold me. You, you, <laughs> you really have. Yeah. Um, but I probably will go when you're doing the training because I'm sure that's going to oh, happen yeah. soon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll be doing the training here before too long. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so you're putting all these things sort of that are the, the nitty gritty logistical things that you got to address, right? The parenting things, the kids autonomy things, those are all sort of topics for task five. And basically in task five, it's also the parents talking to the kid and it's they're they're having a conversation about all these things and you're sort of continuing to help coach the parent to do that in a way that's consistent with, you know, emotion coaching, you know, trying to understand the, the adolescent's experience first, right? And then go into problem solving. Um, and yeah. connect and then what's the acronym or not, not the, the little pithy phrase that people say, connect, then redirect, like always connect mm -hmm. first. Right. And that's it. Wow. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I've got to ask this question, you know, you can feel free to not say this at all. Um, is there any like connection in this model to you? Cause it's like at the beginning, you're like, yeah, I was doing this thing because as a adolescent, like I was struggling and then you're working with struggling adolescents. Oh. Is that a, Oh, you mean like, do I connect with like, would this have been helpful for me as a teen? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I mean, a hundred percent. Right. I mean, I think, you know, with my parents, like there's definitely, there was some attachment ruptures there, you know? Um, and I think, you know, just about anybody, you know, adolescence, <laughs> adolescence is a tricky time, right? I don't think anybody feels like, well, some people do. I, I'm just speaking from my own experience. I think a lot, a lot of people in our field, in particular, I think that's why we're sort of drawn to working with families is because we've had difficult experiences with our own families, right? Yeah. And um, so I think there are people that have great families that, you know, they feel connected throughout adolescence. But um, yeah, I think I definitely would have benefited from that a lot. Do you ever get the sense that, um, complete amnesia it's gone it'll come back to me you know a little bit well man that's, that's that sounds great do you where do you guys do at trainings is it all over the country is it mostly up in philly is it yeah it's actually international so um there's a lot of uh so like um the Maudley hospital in london is actually very has partnered uh, a lot and they mostly work with eating disorders um, but they've adopted ABFT as sort of their uh, training or I mean their uh, family model for working with families. Um, there's actually a new contract with the Newport Academy which is a national treatment center for adolescents and that's this is going to be their uh, even Milu model where you know all the staff are going to be working on you know attachment and 
but yeah, the trainings are offered periodically. A lot of them. So I think they're the intro workshop is usually like twice a year offered locally here in Philly. Um, but then I know how many days is that intro? The intro is three days for the whole thing. You can also just do day one. So day one is sort of like a lot more lecture focused and sort of going through the model. And then days two and three are more in depth examining the tasks and doing some role play and looking at more tape and those kinds of things. And is there like a certification process? Is there just the training process or? Yeah. So the, the certification process is, is fairly straightforward. And I think, um, for what you get pretty affordable too, um, especially compared to some of the other trainings. Um, so, you know, you pay to go to the intro workshop and then after the intro workshop, you can join a supervision group. And so those are conducted via zoom, um, and with Dr. Levy and, uh, there's a few other people that do that lead them as well. And you, you know, present, uh, cases of your own that you're seeing usually with tape, you get feedback and then, you know, you do that for a while. Um, and then you can go to the advanced workshop. So the advanced workshop is also three days. And in that workshop, you really get into sort of like the more complex issues and, you know, different kinds of problems and, you know, what are the, the really things that you're struggling with. And then after the advanced workshop, you can continue in your supervision group, but then you can also start to submit certification tapes. So there's an adherence measure and you complete the adherence measure on a tape for a particular task and you send it in for review. And then they review the tape and give you feedback on the tape and you continue to submit tapes um, and get feedback. And when you submit enough tapes, I think it's 10 is sort of like the minimum, uh, then you can be certified. And what they're looking for is sort of, you can do, uh, you do a, an adherence measure and you write it up as if, you know, you're like, okay, well, I, this is what I did, but here's how I would do it differently. So you're graded on, you don't have to have a perfect tape to be certified. It's, you just have to know what you should, could do differently to, to more closely follow the model. There you go. Has this changed your, your viewpoint on individual therapy? Has it changed my viewpoint on individual therapy? Yeah, like, I mean, so, some people find themselves going, look, we know relationships are super important, whether they're the cause or whether they're the buffer. Um, and so like, I only do individual, I only do relational work. Other people still say, Hey, look, I work with individuals because of whatever. I mean, has this changed you? No, I, I definitely don't feel like I wouldn't work with individuals because of this. I think, um, in fact, you know, even, in the context of learning ABFT, you know, I've definitely done a lot more or I'd not a lot more, but I've definitely still continue to do some individual work. Um, and so I think for me, it's like, it's again, it's, it's, you work with what you have, you know, and the reality, you know, I think it was um, Whitaker that 
like refused to work with a family unless every family member was there, right? Yeah. And then, like, later in life, like, even, like, three generations. Like, you have to, I have to have three generations. <laughs> and it's, like, that's so unrealistic, you know? Like, that's just not the world we live in. No. And I mean, if you really want to help people, you have to meet them where they're at. And not everybody can get a family, you know, to come. Not everybody can have their family members come in, you know? Yeah. Um, particularly when you're working with under, uh, underserved populations, you know, um, there's a lot of resistance to therapy. Uh, you know, the population that we work with here, because we're in West Philadelphia, we work and we, you know, operate at no cost, you know, we're no cost therapy. Um, we work with a lot of um, African American families, and there's a lot of skepticism and a lot of, uh, pushback on therapy, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, particularly, I think a lot of fathers, you know, even when they are, you know, in the home, um, sometimes they aren't willing to come into therapy, but that's, I mean, that's not a, across the board. In fact, you know, I only have a few cases right now and one of them is the father and son and the mom won't come in. You know, but I think regardless, you know, in any population, I think there's people that are really skeptical about therapy. And so you can't always get them to even get in the door yeah. to, for you to try and convince them. Right. I, I, I call them up and, and, or I go out to the car, you know, that's, that's another thing is like, they'll, sometimes they'll come and just sit in the car and we'll go out there and talk to them and say, Hey, you know, why don't you come in here for a little bit? Call yeah. them up and tell them, you know, Hey, you know, kid would really, really love it. You know, it'd mean a lot to them if they, if you came in for a session, right? Yeah. No, I think that's very, very true as well. That's something that I've been struggling with in my own sort of practice. I'm, I'm getting clearer on it. Um, but trying to figure out where clients are, mm -hmm. you know, holding to what I think is the ideal, but also, you know, realizing where clients are. Right. Uh, and working from that reality. Yeah. So, well, man, look, we're about to start winding down. Um, what are you reading now? What's on your, uh, your bookcase on your, on your nightstand? Do you still put books in their bathroom? I don't know if that ever, really, <laughs> which is disgusting if you, if you think about it, but. Yeah. So I'm actually really into um, this new book. Uh, it's the, the author is Tony Roos. Yeah. Bruce Manatti. Do you know what? Him? Yeah, I, 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 I want to have him on. Yeah, uh, Rome, Romanary, Rosemanary. He does Rose, the Rose the, the, Yeah, the 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 deliberate practice guy. Yeah, deliberate practice of psychotherapy. Um, I'm big into that. I think, uh, you know, I haven't really had the time since I've been working here to do this, but I think, you know wherever I end up next, I really want to monitor outcomes and be more intentional about uh, doing that kind of work. I actually listened to a previous episode where I can't remember who it was that you were talking to, but they were talking about that. The monitoring. It's either Scott Miller or, or Alex Vosh. I think it was Scott Miller. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, really, I really want to get into that. No, but it's super cool because it I'm is. actually, uh, so I'm, 
going through the certification process for ABFT and instead of submitting tapes, because I work with Guy Diamond and we already have time set aside for supervision, I'm getting the very rare opportunity to get certified sitting in a room with him reviewing my tape. So every week we go through a tape and we sit there together and watch the entire, you know, an entire session and we stop it and talk about it. And it's incredible. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody's ever had, you know, like, or not anybody, but most people don't get the opportunity to sit down with a, a supervisor and go through an entire session, right? Sometimes if you show video, you'll show like little clips, yeah. but the experience of going through an entire session and just breaking it down with a supervisor is incredible. I've, I've identified so many more areas that I can improve as a therapist, just like asking the same type of question over and over and over again, instead of sprinkling in different types of questions. Right. Yeah. I never realized that. Like, like you have grown by asking the same question over and over again. No, sorry. Like that was something that we, that I found out about myself as a therapist is that I always asked the same kind of like feeling questions, Mm. right? So I would ask, you know, like, well, how does that make you feel? And variations of that type of question over and over and over again, instead of asking, you know, other types of questions, relational questions, questions about content, just sort of mixing it up. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man, I have, um, I've watched tape for a, a while, not as much as I need to. And I have decided to go full force into it and I've got a new camera. I've been using a GoPro and then I'm going to get my, I, but it's a buddy's GoPro and I'm going to watch even more tape and get back into it. And you're right. I think it's the way everybody in our field who's in my opinion, an actual master, they are watching tape. Mm-hmm. They're watching tape. And I don't think that there's a way, I mean, I think it's one of the, I've talked, I have a buddy I've talked to about this, but I think that with our ability now to watch tape and the understanding that we have about, about people, in 20 years, the people who are master therapists will be, um, they, what they will do will appear to be magic to, to the rest of us. Right. Um, and I, I'm glad to know that you're on that, that, that same path, you know, because like... Mm-hmm. And it, to me, that's really just exciting. It's cool. Yeah. I think it's super critical. I think it is. Have you ever, this is something else I'm thinking of doing. I'm thinking of watching tape to look for tells with my clients. Mm. You know? Like when they're feeling a certain way or when they're lying or when they're. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, so most of my work I do now is with, is with couples. And in session, I can usually tell out of, the, out of the corner of my eye, like how the other person is responding. Mm-hmm. But I think by watching tape, I will be able to better see how they're responding to the partner, I'm, to the partner I'm working with. Right? right. So if I'm talking to, I don't know, I'm thinking of a case specifically right now that I think it's, it's, it's a little dicey. It's an older couple, um, military family. Right. And the husband, is very the wife can be very critical and I, and I don't always catch it and so I think by watching tape I can I can tell on the front end oh these are her cues these you know she does this she does this just like you would in a poker game right and then 
knowing that after watching to the tape, I can go back into session and be more attuned on how to handle that when it comes up. Right. Um, so I think that's the other, like obviously looking at myself and seeing what am I doing? Am I following the model? It's my own stuff coming up. And then also sort of watching the client's responses and seeing um, how they're responding and then pre-planning sort of like mini interventions or micro moves. Right. So have you thought any about that or? No, I think that's really interesting. Um, a lot of the time when I'm watching tape, I'm more interested in my self. And yeah. Which is, we're not done. Right. Uh, but I think that's interesting, particularly like in a situation like that, where you feel like there's something happening in session that you want to understand more um, and sort of cut off early, right? Because I think that's what you're saying is you want to pick up on what are the, 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 you know, the signs leading up to um, something so you can sort of intervene early, right? And right, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's phenomenal. Okay, man. Um, last question. Okay. What do you see as on the frontier of the field? So I think what we were just talking about is one thing. Um, and a piece of that is clinical outcome monitoring. So I have a buddy in my cohort, Nick Hayes, PhD. He, he just defended this semester. Woo, woo, woo. Congrats to him. He's graduating soon, um, but he successfully defended. So he's a doctor now. Wow. Um, but he took a job at a substance abuse treatment um, facility in uh, Nashville, Tennessee as like their clinical outcome monitoring specialist for like the whole company. Wow. And I think that that is sort of like the cutting edge. So like he talks about it, like when you're looking for a surgeon, so he has a son that had to have brain surgery when he was wow. like less than a year old. And so he talks about like when he was going through that process of finding a surgeon, surgeons like publish data on themselves, right? They're like, I have a 99% success rate or what, you know, whatever it is. And they have all these stats, right? And he says, that's going to be the future of treatment centers. That's going to be the future of individual therapists, right? Is that we're going to track all of our outcomes. And because, you know, if you think about it, it's like, how do you, how do you know that you're, you know, like it's all the stuff that we're talking about, about deliberate practice, but it's also like going to be a huge shift for consumers too, for clients to be like, Oh, wow you know, this is a great therapist. And I think it's going to really push people to work on improving. Right. So I think that that's the future is like, we're all going to be, you know, crunching stats on ourselves. Hmm. I like that for, for a long time. I've, I've thought that in the future, we won't have evidence-based models. We'll have evidence-based clinicians. Adrian blow. That's his catchphrase. Really? He's yeah. I need to talk to this. I've never heard of that. that was Because, no, you know, he's a big common factors researcher. Yeah. But the last workshop that I saw him at, that was his big push. That's wow. So that's where I got the Roos um, Manieri book recommendation was from him in this workshop where he was talking about that, of how, you know, treatments are all basically equal. Yeah. But there's huge variability in, in clinicians. the effectiveness of clinicians. And so that's his thing is that we shouldn't be talking about evidence-based treatments. We should be talking about evidence-based clinicians. I think that would do a lot for the field. And it's almost in some ways becoming easier. I mean, 
I'm amazed. I actually feel a little self-conscious about this, but I'm amazed at how many of my clients come in with smartwatches. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, and I don't own a smartwatch, but apparently they all do. And it's like, okay, that thing is always collecting data on you. Yep. So it's not that much harder to develop an app for therapists and track people's physiology and then have them do a four item questionnaire on their watch when they're done, you know, mm-hmm. and then you have the, you have the uh, data and then yeah. you know where they were triggered, if they were flooded when they left, how they thought about the session. Um, and it will take them, you know, two seconds in the car to go, you know, yes, my therapist was attuned. No, we didn't deal with what I wanted to deal with. Overall, it was fine. You know what I mean? Like, and then, and then you're done. Like, it doesn't, right. um, it's just, it's, it's, it's getting so easy now that, yeah. Yeah. It's like, you can take all of Gottman's like heavy duty research and it's, it's going to be automated. <laughs> That's what blows my mind is, you know, Gottman is a hardcore researcher and such a a math nerd. And he worked so hard to get the data that, that he got. And in like, you know, 10 years, it'll be like on your wrist. <laughs> like right. Won't even right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, man. He's probably not upset about it. I think he does pretty well. <laughs> I think he's doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Jesse, I've, I've enjoyed this so much, man. Thank you so too. much. Um, and, man, we should do this again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. I told you I want to start my own podcast. You know, you didn't tell me that. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, man, we should definitely talk about that, okay? Yeah. All right. Talk to you later. All right.